Welcome to Water Beyond Earth, a podcast series where we explore the world of lunar water extraction and purification. Our model example is the LUVEX project, a collaborative European endeavor for lunar water extraction and purification technologies. Join us as we present the project vision, as we examine the importance of water in space exploration and discuss the technical aspects of water extraction and purification. Each episode will bring you closer to understanding a future in which astronauts will sustain themselves and their exploration voyages by using the resources they find beyond Earth's boundaries. Welcome to Water Beyond Earth podcast. In this episode, we're delighted to have Dr. Angel Abut Madrid as our guest, who will be sharing insights on in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU for short, in the realm of space exploration. Angel Abut Madrid is the director of the Center for Space Resources at the Colorado School of Mines. He leads a research program with a primary focus on human and robotic exploration of space and the utilization of space resources. He also serves as the director of the Space Resources Graduate Program. With over 30 years of experience, Angel Abut Madrid has conducted numerous experiments in NASA's low-gravity facilities, such as drop towers, parabolic flights, the Space Shuttle, and the International Space Station. For his significant contribution to the success of human spaceflight, he was honored with the NASA Astronauts Personal Achievement Award. He is currently the president of the Space Resources Roundtable, focused on lunar, asteroidal, and planetary resources studies, and was recently an observer and technical panel member of the HAC International Space Resources Governance Working Group. He's also a member of the Committee of Planetary Protection of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. Welcome, Angel. We're very, very happy to have you and we're excited to learn more about in-situ resource utilization. Can you please provide our listeners with an overview of what ISRU is and um, why is it crucial for space exploration? Yeah, it is a pleasure to be here, Monica, uh, talking about this uh, uh, topic that uh, fascinates me and fascinates a lot of people. Um, ISRU, in short, is in situ resource utilization. It's a fancy term to uh, address the the, uh, the the value of local resources wherever you go in the solar system to be utilized for a variety of applications. You know, propellant production could be human consumables, construction, manufacturing. Uh, the the uh, the, the value of space resources was realized very early on uh, in the early 20th century when the pioneers that were working on spaceflight realized uh, at the very early start that the gravity of Earth is so large that it takes a lot of energy and it's very costly to send things into space. And that would at some point, point limit what we can do in space. And so they, even back then, they pointed out to the inexhaustible uh, amount of resources in the solar system to be used uh, so we don't have to carry everything from Earth. The term ISRU came uh, into the vocabulary of space uh, experts in the 1980s when space agencies realized that indeed using the resources uh, in space is crucial if you want to have larger payloads, if you wanted to have uh, further ex space exploration, uh, sustained presence on planetary bodies, refueling in space, and everything that's needed to reduce cost and to reduce risk of space missions. 
And can you tell us what are the key resources then that we're looking for uh, in space exploration? What are what are the main resources that um, we're targeting to 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 extract or to utilize in space explorations? Think about anything that is outside of our Earth atmosphere as something that is useful. Anything that you can use to achieve your uh, your objectives in space uh, are considered space resources. So. Let's start by the very first resource that we utilized in space in the early 1960s, and that is just location. Being able to look at our Earth from above can, can has given us now weather forecasting, global communications. We can pinpoint and, 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 and find any location on the Earth with extreme accuracy. We can monitor the health of our planet just by looking at it from above. Uh, so this is what satellite communication satellites are all about. Uh, this is the first resource and the only commercial use of resources at this point. But there's more to this. Uh, if you just leave the Earth into low Earth orbit, you have properties such as high vacuum, uh, low gravity. These are things that are hard to replicate on Earth that can be utilized to make uh, certain very high quality products on space stations that can be utilized on Earth or in space. Think about uh, the amount of inexhaustible amount of solar energy that you have that you can not only use to power spacecraft, but in the future, we can even beam it down to Earth as microwaves uh, to supply energy to our planet. So these are what we call the intangible resources. For more concrete ones, then we have to start going to destinations like the moon, asteroids, Mars, where you can find metals and minerals and water and oxygen and ices even gases on the atmosphere of, of Mars. And, and so these are all resources that one can extract and, uh, and, 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 and utilize. Uh, there's even uh, just the, 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 lunar, the, the soil on the lunar surface or uh, the, this dust that you find on Mars or asteroids that can be used for construction or manufacturing. Uh, interesting enough, there are even human-made resources in space and that is uh, what we call space debris, which is all the trash that we, have, that we have sent into space for more than 60 years that you can, instead of just reburning it through the atmosphere, why not recycle it? Get the, the titanium, the aluminum, and things that we need for propellants or for structures in space. So there's a whole variety of resources. It all depends on what is the objective of your mission or the activity that you want to do in space. That's fascinating. I was not thinking as a location, as a, as a resource, uh, so that's that's re really amazing to hear that it's not really just materials, but it's it's much more to it. ISRU seems to be a pivotal aspect of sustainable long duration missions. Um, can you tell us how ISRU technologies can contribute to reducing the reliance on Earth-based resources for future space endeavors uh, when we think of like living in space and long duration space missions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed, just like you said, they're going to be a pivotal, a pivotal aspect to a sustainable long-duration space mission. It, and it's all about gravity, Monica. Uh, on Earth, we have such such a low, uh, uh, such a high, uh, large gravity force that it makes it very energy-intensive and very costly to set things into space. Take a look at any rocket on a on a launch pad. I don't care what it is: Saturn V, Artemis, Falcon, whatever it is. 90% of the weight of that rocket is fuel that you need to launch the extra 10% uh, 
And that 10% includes the structure and the pipes. So you're lucky if you can send anywhere from 2 to 4% of the, of the rocket beam's payload. So that tells you how difficult it is, is to get out of Earth and how, how costly it is. Just to give you some numbers, to put any mass on low Earth orbit depends on the rocket. It could be you know, the, from the very uh, inexpensive ones. It could be anywhere from about 2000 to all the way to $6,000 or $7,000 per kilogram to put something in low Earth orbit. To put it in perspective, if you multiply my weight by the price of gold today, I'm worth my weight in gold just to put me in low Earth orbit. So that's how costly it is. If you want to go to the moon, it can range from tens of thousands of dollars to million dollars, let alone Mars. So the whole point of, of, of ISRU is that to avoid sending things from Earth, to cut our dependence from Earth, to make it more accessible, less costly, and, and, and then you can start thinking about larger payloads and, and, and longer flights. You can finally think about living on the land, living off the land on planetary basis so that you can use the resources there and not having to send them from Earth, which is, is just going to be uh, impossible uh, from the point of view of cost and, and risk. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but then the research, like to, to utilize or to extract the resources you need, you need tools and you need like machinery, right? Like it doesn't just, it's not just waiting there for you. So how does that respond to the cost of transportation of materials? Like we have to take, I guess, robots, rovers, any kind of machinery to, to process the resources. Can you tell us a little bit more about like technologies and, and how does that respond to yeah, low cost of the mission and, and the upmass volume that we have available? Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. At the beginning, we're going to have to send the necessary equipment and hardware to uh, identify, to extract, and to utilize the resource. So that's something that has to be done. But even in during that process, you want to send just enough uh, so that you can start working in there, but the rest start using what you have uh, available. So yes, for for example, uh, you're going to have to bring your your extraction machines and your drills and your excavators. Um, but if you can use some of the material there, just like the, the lunar regolith, the regolith is this dust that is on the surface of planetary bodies. It's a, it's a fancy term. But if you can use it to construct your habitats, your landing pads, if you can use it to 3D print tools and spare parts, slowly you're starting to reduce your reliance from, from Earth up to the point that once you have all the infrastructure and you have a pretty uh, well-sustained operation on the moon, then you can start thinking about building machinery uh, from local resources. But that's going to take a little bit longer. At first, you're going to have to send things from Earth, uh, but do it in a way that you can reduce the power, the mass, the volume that you send from Earth so that you can maximize what you can do on the surface of the planetary body and then eventually rely on local resources. I see. And is there is there like a one particular resource that we would be trying to utilize as a first one, or it will be a little bit of everything at the same time? Let's say going to going to the moon. There's a variety of resources, but if I had to pick one, I would pick the resource that we humans look for everywhere we go. I don't care where on Earth, uh, on Mars, or any other place. 
the one thing that we all need is water. Water is, is the key for everything. Uh, it's not just for humans to survive, because that's what we drink, but water could be used to, uh, to uh, shield uh, your habitat against radiation. You can use it to grow plants. You can use it for any for lots of chemical processes. And most importantly, water can be split into hydrogen and oxygen, which is the most energetic propellant combination that you can find. So the moment you have water, you have fuel, and you have fuel in, on site that you have to send on this big tank from Earth, and you can use it wherever you go. And that is why sometimes you, you may hear the, uh, the phrase that water is the oil of space because water is gonna enable everything that oil did for us, lower transportation costs, and able to, to refuel rockets uh, that are in orbit, and it, and it will uh, uh, make everything you know, much, much easier. Uh, that is why a project like Luvix is key to not just get the water, but you have to clean it and purify it in such a way that you can drink it, obviously, as humans, but also that you can put it on a rocket engine so that it can work uh, as hydrogen and oxygen or as steam propulsion. Uh, and, and that's the value of a project like this. Uh, after water, there are other things. Uh, if you cannot get water for some reason, oxygen will be the second best because oxygen, it's uh, more than 80% of the weight of propellants. So you got already 80%, you have to bring the rest, but oxygen will be important for a variety of reasons. And then third, I think, will be uh, metals. Metals will be important for construction and tools and everything else. Mm -hmm. We already learned in the previous episode how to uh, look for suitable sites for um, finding water for the extraction. But can you tell us a little bit more how it works in terms of um, gathering of the resources? Like, let's say we land on the moon and we want to um, extract water, but also we want to gather regolith for, for different processing. Can you tell us how, how that whole process of landing, choosing the site and starting to gather and utilize resources may look like? Yeah, first and foremost, um, you have to identify the resource that you're looking for. Um, and that takes a while because it's not just finding an element. Uh, and we have found elements in various destinations by using what's called remote sensing. So you have a spacecraft going around the planetary body. It uses cameras. It uses uh, what's called a spectrometers, which can identify what type of elements are of importance. But it's very different from just identifying a, an element than turning it into what we call a proven reserve. That means that you know that resource with enough geological, engineering, science, but also economical, environmental certainty that you can that you know that you can go after it. So it's not just enough to say, oh, I found iron in this place of the moon. Well, how much? In what concentration? Uh, how deep does it go? Uh, what, is, what is the accessibility to this place? That's what's going to make it a resource. So that first part is going to involve remote sensing, but also we have to go down to the ground and start drilling and, and making sure that we characterize that also in what type of mineral is this element located because that's going to determine the technology that you need to extract it so the first part is very important uh, identify the resource make sure that it's something that you can access that you can extract and then design the right technology to extract i was also wondering how does it 
how does it work from the international collaboration perspective? Are there any guidelines or are there any rules or, or laws that are guiding the resource extraction or is it the first first come first serve or there is international agreement of how we're going to construct the the lunar habitats but also just just utilize resources now you're getting into some difficult questions monica <laughs> uh, i mean science and technology is difficult enough but the legal and the policy aspects of space resources are as challenging. And it's actually a field that is very rapidly uh, taking importance and, 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 and people are working on this because contrary to Earth, there are very few rules at the, at the moment. There's, there's international treaties like the, international, the, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 or the Moon Treaty of 1979 that establish very general concepts uh, no country can own a celestial body. A country cannot own the moon or asteroids. Uh, it also says that uh, things that come up from uh, scientific investigation is for the benefit of all humankind. But, but they're not very clear in terms of, well, I may not own the celestial body, but can I extract it for a little while and then clean up my space and then leave uh, and then for somebody else? You know, those are the things that are being discussed uh, and there's a variety of things happening. There are uh, uh, countries passing their own laws about space resources, like the United States and Luxembourg and Japan and the United Arab Emirates. There are uh, there's a subcommittee in the United Nations that is looking at how space resources should be looked at from the global point of view. Uh, and then there's other um, groups that are bundling together uh, of countries that are trying to agree on how to access resources. So there's a lot going on there because uh, the extraction and utilization of resources is practically inevitable. This is going to happen if we want to continue exploring space. Might as well do it in a way that is that is fair, that is responsible, that is sustainable, and that is efficient. And do you have any prediction when we'll have that agreement? Because constantly, as you said, this field is growing very rapidly, but constantly when 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 I try to find information, specific informations, everyone is just referring to lunar treaty or space treaty. And like there is, I don't know, but is there like a specific deadline for when we want to establish specific rules or it just will happen naturally when we'll go to the moon again and start building there? I, I think the latter. I mean, at some point we're already doing this. And you already started seeing a lot of international participation just to identify the resources. Right now, you have the United States with several spacecraft going around. They're about to send in a few months the first drill to identify resources. In a couple more years, there's going to be a rover called Viper that is going to be doing this. But at this very moment, India has a spacecraft that has... Uh, that landed and is looking for resources. Korea has a spacecraft that is looking at the permanently shadow regions of the moon. In a few more years, you're going to have Japan and India with a common uh, mission. ESA, the, the European Space Agency, is going to have its prospect mission. You've got China, you've got Russia. So you have all these countries identifying their resources and also planning for demonstrations of how to extract them. And so there needs to be, and there's already an effort underway, to do some sort of coordination this is a major undertaking, Monica. I mean, going after space resources is some of the most challenging things that we have ever done 
on Earth or in space. So it's going to take the, the the participation of all these countries so that we don't replicate efforts so that somebody can find a resource, the other one can find demonstrate a certain technology, and we can all coordinate this. Uh, that will be ideal. Now, this is ideal, but you know some countries may want to be more secretive about things than others. So that's going to take some of this uh, uh, legal framework that you were talking about to establish uh, what's doable and, and what can be shared and, and what's going to benefit everybody. And I guess these are two different fields, extracting resources like in situ, basically. So directly um, for in-situ for in situ applications. So extracting resources on the moon in order to build lunar habitat versus extracting resources to bring it back to Earth. That probably wouldn't be in situ resource utilization, right? Because then you extract resources that you want to utilize on Earth. Is that like different field or it's still called ISRU when we like extract resources on asteroids, for example? Yeah, no, ISRU is, it, it applies specifically to using local resources to reduce the cost and risk of missions. Uh, there's another term that is being used a lot. It's just without the I, just space resource utilization. So that will be just utilizing resources for some other things. You know, you may want to use space debris or solar energy, but bringing resources to earth is something that right now is not economically feasible and it may not be in quite some time. It, it, just because of the reasons that I explained before, how costly, how energy intensive it is to send things from Earth, is mostly about utilizing resources in space for space applications. It is what we call here on Earth to live off the land. You do not want to bring it all with you. It's not about bringing it to Earth. We have plenty of resources on Earth and we have still a lot of technology that we can develop. So at least for the near term and midterm, uh, and quite a long time, it's going to be about using resources to enhance the space exploration, to increase the number of commercial activities in space, and, and start developing space uh, in a much larger way. But then it's, I guess it's easy to imagine for, for the lunar habitat that we need resources to sustain uh, astronauts and to build habitats and to like um, establish our more permanent presence there. But then can you explain how it works with extraction of resources on asteroids, for example, if, if it's not for bringing it back to Earth? Asteroids are an interesting celestial body. Uh, this, there are plenty of these, millions of them, and they come in different types and flavors. And so they, they have different type of resources, anywhere from carbon, which is an important resource, to water, water that is... It's located differently than on the moon and Mars. Uh, you see, uh, resources are pretty common in all places on the solar system because we were all formed from the same stuff. But they they are located in different in different shapes and forms due to different geological processes that gave rise to this. For example, water is located on the permanently shadow regions of the moon because it was it, they were fed by by comets and asteroids. Uh, on asteroids, you have them locked on hydrated minerals. That means a mineral has water locked into it. On Mars, you can find it subsurface because Mars had water at some point. So it all depends what is the shape and form in which they are. So asteroids have water, have carbon. Some of them have iron, have nickel. 
And some of, of the metallic types have actually the platinum group metals that are very important. So it all depends what you're going after. The main interest right now on asteroids is that since they contain water, think of them as gas stations in the solar system. So you depart from Earth with a limited amount of, of, of fuel. Then if you really want to go beyond Mars and beyond, then you go to the near to the uh, asteroid belt. You come to an asteroid, you extract the water, that's your fuel, then keep going. And that way you can uh, fuel yourself all the way up to the end of the solar system if you want, instead of bringing this huge tank from Earth. So the value of asteroids is extracting the water, is extracting the carbon that can be turned into other fuel like methane. Uh, you can extract nitrogen, which is important for the growth of plants. And you can extract metals that can then be transported across the solar system, even to places like Mars or other places, for construction, for space manufacturing and the like. So they're important as a stepping stone to go other places. Okay. And then I see water is the answer again. <laughs> again, water and, and, and water is everywhere. I mean, it's, it's something that we have found. Uh, and, and here I, I've been talking only about asteroids, Mars, and the moon, because that's what I think that we're going to be doing in, you know, in our lifetimes. Well, at least in yours, <laughs> not mine. But, uh, you know, 30, 50, 40 years from now. But you got water uh, on the, on the uh, subsurface oceans in Europa. You got uh, hydrocarbons on Titan. There's raining from the sky and it's on lakes. So there's plenty of resources and water everywhere in the solar system. Use it as a way to establish anything that you want to have there, either robotically or by humans. And putting water aside, is there any like specific celestial body um, that you think it's especially interesting, maybe not just scientifically, but specifically about like the research that it has, like, I don't know, planet made out of gold or <laughs> something that it's <laughs> interesting resource wise. Um, I would say that from the point of resources, and again, it's important to understand that our resource has value because you can utilize it. It's not just for scientific purposes. So as, 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 as an element that has value, the moon is at this point the most important one. Why? It's close. We can get there in very little time. It will be the first place where we're going to demonstrate technologies to extract water, oxygen, metals. It's going to be the first place where we're going to probably go to have extended periods of human presence. So it's very important from the point of view of resources. Obviously, uh, there's other places like Titan that is fascinating for me because it's you can find uh hydrocarbons of all types in liquid form um it's it's a very strange environment that you can do a lot it has a very thick atmosphere you can fly or helicopters and airplanes on everything you want there so it's uh, it's fascinating from the point of view but that's a little bit beyond what i can envision in the near in the near term okay so let's focus on the moon then <laughs> Sounds, Correct. sounds great yeah. and sounds yeah. very exciting, yeah. especially with the technologies that we're developing now. Absolutely, yeah. So can you tell us or do you have any ideas of how public or the younger generation can become more engaged and informed about the significance of in-situ research utilization and its impact for the future of space exploration? Uh, ways to do this. Exactly with a podcast like this, Monica. This, this is a way for scientists and engineers that dealt with very complex 
technologies of how to extract resources and identify resources and do it in a way that the general public can understand. What can be more easy to understand than to extract water, to clean it up so that you can drink it? That's something that we do every day. So everybody can relate to that. So if you're telling somebody that we want to go to the moon, the first thing they're going to say, how am I going to survive there? Well, you're going to need water. You have to clean it up. So if you can explain how you're going to do that under obviously more challenging environment, uh, that's a way to, to start uh, making people understand the value of, of resources. Uh, so that's one way to do it, obviously, to participate in, in general uh, talks on, on public libraries and on different forums. It's an important way to do this. Um, another way is by the most consumed medium that we have these days, you know, movies, books, things like this, series and all that. If you can make those, obviously some of them are full of science fiction and all that, but if you can make it realistic enough, uh, that could be a very powerful source of engagement, of motivation and of inspiration. And inspiration, Monica, may be arguably the most powerful resource that space can give us and can bring to all so that we continue pushing for further exploration beyond our planet. Oh, that's so beautiful. Let's take that as the ending remark, as inspiration is the most significant resource. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a renewable resource because uh, it's interesting how it's fascinating from, from, from kids to, to adults space has this power to, to inspire us and to make us push and get the best of us to keep continue exploring and, and, and doing things better for our whole humanity. Amazing. Thank you so much, Angel. The podcast miniseries Water Beyond Earth is hosted by LUVEX, a research consortium funded by the European Union Horizon 2022 Space Science and Exploration Technologies Program under grant agreement number 10108937.